Who here has a Facebook account? Grandpa, I'll tell you what Facebook is. Facebook is like this online connection of everyone in the world that has like posts their pictures and their profile of who they are, and it's a connection that way. Let's do it better this way. Let's, if you're brave, who doesn't have a Facebook account? <laughs> I don't either. Okay. But I use my wife's. And this is the first time I got on. And usually I just stand over her shoulder and look at it. And it is amazing the amount of time that can be spent on Facebook. I was sitting down to listen to the last two messages of Malachi just so um, that I had you know, preparation already. I wanted to hear Sam, what he said. I wanted to hear what my pop said last week so I could you know, follow a theme. And uh, I was listening and I was like, well, what should I do? And so I, I, I thought, oh, I'll look at the pictures that my wife said she saw of people in our church from uh, a Friday night party that happened on Facebook, and I started to go through, <laughs> and I, you know, I'm looking on Facebook here, and, I'm, and uh, I start seeing people I know, so I start going, and I'm making smart aleck comments, you can go to their place and make smart aleck comments, and then I realize, wait, this is under my wife, so it looks like she's the one making the smart aleck comments, so of course, I start making more smart aleck comments <laughs> under her name, and then I realize, wait a second, she's going to be mad with me that I'm going to all these people when she finds out, so I have to go back to all the profiles and say, just kidding, that was Benji, ha, 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 ha. You don't know how much time <laughs> that thing can take out of your life. Um, but I did finally get to the place where I was looking, and that was um, for some pictures of pirates. And uh, I found a picture of Scott Warren. He came dressed as a cow pirate. Um, and I'm pretty sure he's getting kicked out of the leadership team next week. <laughs> but anyways, that... Um, I just wanted to tell you guys that, that we're excited to be a part of this body. We're excited um, with where we're going. And I uh, want to use today, hopefully God will use today, um, to help us push towards Him. Push towards the kind of life that He wants each of us to live. But let's uh, pray and ask Him to do that today. God, we love you. Um, we're excited that you take the time to even notice us. And, and it's not just like you casually noticed us. You have invested all of who you are into us, and that's an, an amazing thing. For those of us that have trusted and placed our faith in you for salvation, we've been given the gift of, of your very life, your spirit that lives in us now. God, I've ignored that spirit in my life way too long, and I pray this morning through your word, through your calling, that, that we would awaken to, to your call for our life, that we would no longer yield to... Um, our own selfish desires, but that we would yield to you. I pray this in your name. Amen. We've been uh, look, going through the book of Malachi here. And Malachi is written to the children of Israel. And the children of Israel, we've even heard this morning, they, they uh, make a lot of mistakes, don't they? They continue to get it wrong, and yet... It, it becomes very scary how easily we can see the similarities between ourselves, even the, the church here in the United States, and even this church with the children of Israel. It becomes uh, eerie, the similarities of, of the paths we take in our dealings with God. And uh, I wanted to start, we're going to read, so if you have your Bible, turn to Malachi chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied Him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? So that can maybe be confusing. Read it with me again. 
You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied Him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? What's this verse saying? What was the problem with the children of Israel here in Malachi? What were they doing? They were beginning to doubt the goodness of God. They were beginning to doubt that God even cared with the evil that was going on in the world. You see, I said they compared to us very similar. Well, this is one way. They were a people of God, a chosen people of God, that were living in a world that was contrary to who God was. Are we there still? It still holds up the similarities? Okay? And these people were starting to get discouraged by the evil that they saw around them in the world. I've talked about it before, about how I hate to watch the news, how I hate to read the, the newspaper, especially the, the, the stories that just make you cringe. And these people had, had fallen, the children of God had fallen into the belief that God did not care anymore. They had gotten so discouraged and so wearied of living among these people, um, the, the world that they had begun to doubt God's goodness and faithfulness. So much so that they were asking, does God even care? Is God good Himself? And that's a serious accusation against God, isn't it? Against the character of God. That we would doubt, one, that He's in control, but even doubt the character of God. And so God responds, He says, you're wearying me. This upsets me. That you're saying these things about me. And more so than just saying these things about me, your life has started to demonstrate that you really believe this. That there is no measure of right and wrong. That no one will pay the price. No one will be judged. God doesn't care, so live however you will. You know what, I think this is how they looked. I think this is how their life looked. I think they woke up in the morning. I think they went to work. I think they came home. I think they watched a little TV. I think they went to bed, and then they started the whole day up again. You see, we hear about awful things that, that the children of Israel do, but, but even here, I don't, I don't know. I, we, we learned about how they were um, struggling with divorce, how they were struggling with other sins, and yet I don't know if it looks too different than the church does right now as far as their behavior. You see, I, I don't think that we're too far separate from this. as a a church in the United States, and hopefully not true, but even a a church here, that we are living differently than the world, that we have an understanding that God is in control. There is a difference between what is right and good and true and what is wrong, and God definitely does care. God says, you are wearing me out because you're defaming my name both by what you're saying about me and both by how you're living. Like, it really doesn't matter. I uh, had a, a chance to talk um, about the qualities of God. Uh, it was a, f- a few weeks ago now, it was a few months actually. And one of the qualities that I was given was the long-suffering of God. And we addressed the, this issue, that people are saying, where is God? Why do good things happen to, or bad things happen to good people? And we, we ran in some of these same questions, didn't we? Of What is God doing? Doesn't He know the awful things that are going around? Is it out of control? Does He care? 
And uh, we addressed that uh, in that meeting. We talked about the reasons and the purposes of God and why He's not just flying in and judging everything and conquering. But our God is a long-suffering God, wishing none to perish, but wishing all to come to His name. He has more people that He wants to know Him. He has more people that need to be transitioned from death into life. And so when we see God and it looks like, man, what is He doing? He's not coming in and conquering and judging and destroying all that is evil. Well, God is waiting lovingly with His long-suffering, His patience, waiting for those that will believe in Him, that will trust Him, that will come to Him. And yet, because of their circumstances, they were unable to see that aspect of God. He'd been long-suffering with them in their past. We learned that this morning. He continued to give them chances. And yet they had forgotten the character of God. And so, in their plea of, God, where are you? Why have you left us alone? Are you going to do anything about this? Are you going to intervene? God tells them in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, the ultimate way that He will intervene. Read with me. Behold, I am going to send my messenger... And he will clear the way before me. Ten Sunday school points. Anyone besides Grandpa? Who is the messenger that will clear the way before him that he will send? Raise your hands. Don't shut it up. Okay, Sam, I, I like Jason better. So, okay. John the Baptist. This is talking about John the Baptist. Man, John the Baptist is talked about in the Old Testament several times. It talks about this guy that's going to be coming um, in front of Jesus. Oops, I gave the next question away. <laughs> coming to prepare the way for God Himself to come and roam on earth. And John the Baptist, man, how cool would it have been to have that kind of calling on your life? And it's funny because in the New Testament we read, you know, there's very little that talks about him. We learn that he's a crazy man, totally intense on his purpose, totally devoted to following the Lord. And then then we hear that that he baptizes the Lord Jesus and then the next thing we know that he's gone, he's dead, he's been killed for his, his faith and his belief and then he's out of the picture. And yet here it is, beautiful, uh, a calling on someone's life that he will have the purpose of announcing God himself, announcing the promised one. You see, they were growing discouraged because we learned about the covenants this morning. And one of the covenants that was promised was that the Messiah would be coming. The one that would rescue Israel. And you know what? They got confused sometimes. They, they thought it was going to be a rescuing of, from captivity or a rescuing from the bondage of, of the rest of the empires in the world. And, and, and you know what? The truth is Jesus did come and offer that at the time He came, and yet they rejected Him. But more importantly, the Messiah was promised to come to restore Israel to Himself. Listen to the, the next part of the verse. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. We need to break this verse down. The Lord is coming. And um, there's a lot of views on what this verse means. Um, The first part of the verse when it says, Behold, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. Most scholars, most uh, people that are studying this think that that is the the first appearance of Jesus when He comes to the earth. And and that was fulfilled when He actually enters the temple itself and casts out the tax collectors. That is the fulfillment of the prophecy that the Messiah is coming to the earth. And then 
you break it up and most people think that the next part of it is his second coming, when he will come again. Look into that for yourselves. That would be a good thing to study because that gets confusing. Um, and sometimes we read over that and, and it kind of changes uh, some of our understanding. So that would be a good thing. I encourage you to go home and study. What, what's this all about, second coming? Uh, I want to leave you just with that. Um, but think of the power of this. And listen to the, the verse. These are people that are downtrodden, right? The children of Israel. These are people that are discouraged. We already said that. These are people that, that seemingly don't care anymore. And yet listen to the, the passionate way that um, it is spoken of, of how they feel about the Messiah. This is the Lord whom you seek. And then later it says, in whom you delight. So something inside of these people that have walked away from the Lord, that are discouraged with God, that are actually cursing His name, actually defaming His name and how they live and what they say, still longs and loves and desires for the Messiah to come. You see, there is something deep within them that has been placed there, I believe, by God Himself that is seeking for God to come and restore fellowship with Him. I think that's just amazing that, that they had a passion for the Messiah. Even more so than John the Baptist, we see, and we're going to learn this as we go through the Old Testament with Theron here, that Jesus, the Messiah, is prophesied constantly in the Old Testament. He's, he is, the, his coming is, is just, you know, now that we have a perspective looking back on what they wrote is just obvious that they, he, they are telling forth of one that would come and save Israel. So much fa- so that it gets down to scary details, you know, stuff that's not just coincidence, but stuff that happened, you know, way earlier in history is predicted, and then Jesus comes and fulfills it to the T. You know, even that, so that he be he born in Bethlehem. Um, well, he was born in Bethlehem. And earlier in the prophets, we see that they, they said that. And now here is another proclamation that Jesus himself is coming to make things right. So the second part, And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So now they're reading about hearing this, and and maybe this isn't exactly what they were hoping for, for the Messiah to come, but here it describes Jesus as someone that would come and purify the nation of Israel that would purify them of their sins. Now, um, who can describe what happens um, when, when we wash something? This is a simple, I know, this is elementary, but maybe it'll help me understand a little more. So who, what happens if you have a, a soiled, the, it talks about the launder of soap. What happens if you have a, um, I just went out, slip and slide, muddy, in the backyard, I have clothes. Now what's the process? Someone be silly with me and, and, and entertain my thought. What happens? Really? <laughs> 
<laughs> then I'll explain. No, someone volunteer here and help me. Help me. Uh, anyone? 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 Okay, I'll explain. Oh, Jason, go ahead. Yes. Now, is the purpose of using the launderer soap to destroy those clothes that you had? No. No. The purpose is what? Is to make them as they once were. Right? Clean. Acceptable. What about in silver? Anyone know? Uh, this is something past me a little bit, but maybe somebody could explain what's the process that they used to do when they were to refine silver? Doesn't silver always come out of the mines nice and shiny like that right away? No. What's the process, Gramps? Uh, they heat it to a high temperature and the impurities are loosened and float to the surface. And they are skimmed off and then possibly they repeat the process. you hear that? <coughs> the heat allows the impurities of the silver to rise to the top and they scrape off the nasty stuff that's going to tarnish the silver and they take it away, they remove it. This is the beautiful part about the judgment that God will come back with. And the children of Israel, this is His faithfulness to the promise. He is not coming back to the children of Israel on His second return to say, I'm done with you, I am destroying you. No, He is coming back seeking their repentance. And even after years of shaking their hands in His fist and rejecting His own Son, He will come back and He will seek to purify His people to Himself once again. Is that a good God? Is that a long-suffering God? You see, it, it would not be fun to be purified. It will not be fun to be judged. And yet, even in our own lives, God is not seeking to destroy us when He's longing to bring us back into fellowship with Himself, is He? Rather, He is seeking, even though it seems difficult to be underneath the discipline and hand of God, He is seeking and desiring the relationship to be restored to what it once was. And He longs for the purity that once existed in our lives to be restored. And with the children of Israel, He longs for them to repent. He will judge sin. It's clear. It's evident that those that have long shaken their fist in God's, in God's face and, and lived contrary to what He said was right will be judged. Make no mistake about it. Sin will not go unpunished. And yet even in the judgment of God is His grace, isn't it? That He is willing to have those that He loves come back to Him. He says He's going to be, in verse, I believe it's verse, um, let's see here, verse 3 He says, He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Theron, why is it important that he would choose the sons of Levi to purify? What was their role? Um, I know I'm putting you on the spot. They knew how to deal with holy things. See, God... And, and, and they held out the ceremonies. They carried out, from what I understand, they carried out the ceremonies of, of, a, of the pictures of God's people coming back to God. Am I right in that? That they, and maybe I'm, I'm off on this, but they, from what I understand, is that the the, the priests of the sons of Levi needed to be cleansed because they were part of of the the process of coming before God. And so the picture here 
is that God is coming back to purify these men so He can bring Israel back to Himself. God is not done with Israel. God has not forsaken His promise. We're learning about all the covenants that He's making with Israel in His Old Testament. God hasn't forgotten them. He is long-suffering. In fact, verse 6, read this with me. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Help me understand this verse. What would it mean if God did change? What is He trying to convey to them in this verse? What if God did change? Why would... He's saying because He doesn't change, that's why they're not being consumed. So does that mean then if God did change, they would be consumed? What does that mean? Why would they be consumed? He made a promise to them, didn't He? He told them, listen, I will be faithful to you. You are my people. I am seeing this through to the end because I made a covenant, a promise. I have a relationship with you and I will be faithful on my end to the nth degree. And you know what? It's an unconditional covenant, wasn't it? It was an unconditional promise that as much as they spit in His face, as much as they went against His decrees and what He said was was the real stuff for real living and real happiness and real joy, as much as they did that, He would be faithful to them. And He says, because I do not change, because I am faithful, because I am steady, I will stay true to my promise. If I went on a whim, if I did everything that... Um, just based on how I I felt as a response to that instantly, you would have been gone years ago. But no, Israel, I love you. And my promises are true. I just think that's amazing, the character of God that comes out in this. That He would take the time to care enough about Israel to stay true to the promise. And you know what? Israel messes up a lot, doesn't it? And we talked about the comparisons that are eerie, aren't they? Uh, Between the children of Israel and, and, and God's church. The same promise is true for us here. God will not change. And His faithfulness remains. So that we, if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Is that good? That's good. Verse 7, we've got to keep going. From the days of your fathers, you have, not turned as- you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Here's the begging of, of God, uh, clearly in love with His people. Return to me, come back to me, and I'll, I'll take you in. I will love on you. I will lavish you with blessing. Come back, please. And they say, well, and how do we do that? How do we get back to you? What's crazy is when he talks about his son coming, he is providing the very way for them to return to him, isn't he? The very sacrifice of Jesus himself that he foretold it comes. And, and when Jesus takes our place on the cross, when, when he accomplishes the burden of sin laid upon Himself and destroys the power of that sin, He has made the way for Israel to return to Him. Because now God can forgive. Now God can say, listen, when I look at you, Israel, 
I see my Son and His sacrifice and His holiness. And I don't have to look at your sinfulness because you've been forgiven. And the offering was there, wasn't it? When Jesus came, He offered to have Israel repent and return to Him for their salvation, for their forgiveness. And yet they rejected it. But the promise still stands because our God does not change. Next uh, verses 8 to 12. This is, um, I believe, where it starts to get uncomfortable for us. The, the whole title of, of the message, Aaron um, Harlow was talking to us as a group as we're trying to decide what do we want our messages to look like. And, and, and he was encouraging us to make sure that there's at least one theme that is seen uh, throughout the message so that we can go home and, and, and understand what was spoken about that morning. And the whole concept of this message I, I want to present to you is um, robbing God is the concept that, that we want to get out today. Robbing God. I want you to read these next verses with me if you could. Starting verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You are a curse with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now on this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. They ask him, God, how, what are you talking about? How are we robbing you? Well, set up in Israel were, were, were tithes and offerings. And Ethan talked about this a while ago, um, the concept of the tithe. Uh, we, when you think of tithe, some, sometimes some of the teaching um, that has been heard has been, well, the tithe is just 10% of my income. I give that to the church. I'm good to go. Well, back in the days of Israel, it wasn't as simple as that. 10% was just scratching the surface as far as what was required of their physical income to be presented to the Lord. Um, it, lots, of, you know, lots of different studies have been you know, shown on that. And, um, the, what I went um, read getting ready for this was that on a given year, depending which year it was, it could be up to 43 to 47% of their income for that year was required as a tithe offering to the Lord. Um, they had the regular tithe that they required to give. They had additional tithes on top of that that they were required to give. They needed the animals for the sacrifices, the peace offerings that they were required to give. It was a significant responsibility. And, and burden might be the wrong word, but a lot was required of them in this covenant as far as financially means. And they were robbing God in that they were jipping God with the, these tithes. The requirement for an offering was, was to bring an unblemished lamb. Or if you didn't have a lamb, an, an unblemished, uh, was it a dove? And yet, and yet they were coming with uh, the crippled lamb. The one that could barely walk. You know, the gimpy one in the corner that no one petted. And they were coming with that and... and and 
trying to offer that to God, saying, well, well, this is enough. They weren't bringing the full tithe. They weren't bringing the whole offering. But more so than that, than the amount that they were jipping God out of, was a heart problem, was a heart issue, where they had um, gone away from what the whole tithe system was about anyways. The whole thing wasn't about money. God doesn't need your money, does He? I mean, don't get me wrong, but God doesn't have to have your money to survive and be happy, does He? But God chose the money because that is such a connected, for whatever reason, so connected to our motives and connected to our heart attitude that He chose the money aspect of it and said, listen, children of Israel, I have done so much for you. I love you. Here's a way that you can show practically as can be your love, your devotion to this covenant that we've made to one another. Bring your tithes. Bring your offerings to show this hard attitude of your love for me. You know what? They were jipping God out of it. They were robbing Him. They were taking it away. We just got done with a study about money. And I, I'm frankly glad it's over. Cause that's, no, I learned a ton um, about my responsibility with my money. Um, and, and what God requires. Um, but I want to go deeper than, than just the money because the money is just kind of a symptom, isn't it? It's really kind of a hard issue when we rob God. And I, want, I hope we can see how this relates to us. Um, I want to show you, I thought it would help if I gave you an example of how I feel like I rob God on a regular basis. Um, my day looks like this. I wake up in the morning, usually uh, upset that I have to wake up so early. And I get out of bed and I, I uh, actually go into the restroom where I do my best reading. And I, I read God's Word and then I, I go and I get breakfast quick. And by that time, it's, it's time to rush out the door, so I go to work and go to work. Uh, come home, see the kids. I eat some dinner. Abby does a great job, man. Excited about that, getting to eat at the end of the day. And so I eat. After that, I usually wrestle with the kids, get some war wounds, um, go down, watch some TV. Uh, the whole time, by the way, after I get home battling this uh, nagging issue of, well, should I go be with the kids or should I go read about sport news on ESPN.com? You know, so there's this, always this tug of what I want to do versus what you know, I should do or whatever. But I, you know, I usually, because I'm afraid of the wrath of my wife, uh, just kidding, honey, um, Go and end up, you know, spending time with the kids and the family. Oh, and then I watch, after that, watch some TV. We put them down, we watch some TV. Um, then I go, go to sleep. And that's how I rob God. That's how I um, take from God. And you say, well, wait, wait a second, that sounds like a pretty normal day. You got your Bible study in in the morning, right? And so seemingly, that's just, that's just a normal day, right? That's just a, uh, a day lived. And yet expressing, if I can go deeper in that story and express the motive of my heart as I live daily my life to show you why I'm robbing God. Because a lot of times when I wake up and I read and I get out the door and I go to work and I come home and I do it again the next day, a lot of times it becomes monotonous. And you know what? I start to forget about why I'm living and what I'm living for and who has ownership over my life. 
and I live and I do all these appearingly good things, right? And yet when I'm living unintentionally, when I'm living uh, without the sole purpose of glorifying God with my life, with my actions, with every ounce of my being, I've robbed my God. You see, God does not require from you just to put in a few minutes here and a few minutes there to go to church Wednesday night, go to church Sunday morning, uh, do a little Bible study, and then, hey, you're good to go. That'll help you. That's not what He requires of you. You see, God requires all of you. It is not enough for us to exist. God requires and desires and longs for us to live for Him. You see the difference in that? My day has to be about the will of my Father. My day has to start with an understanding that this day is not my day. It's His day. And so that everything that comes into my way, from what I eat in the morning, to what I'll think about when I'm in the shower, from how I'll respond to people at work, to what I'll decide to do after I get home from work, all of that has to be filtered through God's calling on my life. And you know what? God has called those that have placed their faith in Him to something much higher than just existing. You see, if you've allowed repetitiveness and comfortableness and, and doing it again, living in this world to dominate your life without becoming an intentional follower and disciple of the Lord Jesus, you are robbing God. Because it is not your time. It is His time. And this has been rocking my world that God has laid out for me 70 to, I hope more, years for which here on this earth I can show Him that, God, it's not about me. It's about You. You see, it goes far past just whether I give a few bucks here on Sunday morning, doesn't it? It's much harder than that. It's much deeper than that. And we, as a church, maybe, and I know as a church abroad in the United States, have, have really failed to see how we have been robbing God. Listen to the picture of what happens if we were to get serious about God's calling on our life, if we were to understand who owns us. Listen to what could happen. Bring me the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Test me now on this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. See, this is not a, a financial um, was it formula for our success. That if I bring here, okay, I'm going to have my money on Sunday morning, I'm going to put that in the offering, and then according to this, if I bring enough... God is going to calculate that into His formula and then blow my mind with how much money I get back in return because of that. Put a few here and here, become a lottery winner on the other side. And that's not really what this is talking about. 
Uh, unfortunately, I, I do not know too many millionaire Christians. I really don't know too many. It exists, and um, you know, God chooses uh, who will have that. But you know what? The blessing He is talking about is much deeper than, it, than anything money could ever give us. Past anything that, that the financial security of having enough dollars to get through the week could ever give us. The blessing that He is talking about is, is the spiritual life that His Son offers us. The spiritual life that the, the Spirit living in us gives us. We talked about how silly it was that, that the children of Israel continued to deny God even though He had given them everything they needed to know how to live with maximum joy and maximum promise and maximum life, maximum happiness. And we think about how silly they are that they wasted that. And yet God outlines in His Word how we can live with maximum joy, maximum love, maximum happiness, doesn't He? And it's in a life that is yielded to His Spirit. It's in a life that is yielded to His purpose. I want to read some verses that will um, help us get some perspective on that. First I want to read John, 1 John Chapter 2, verse 17, so you can turn there. Almost out of time, so we'll hurry up here. Verse 17 of 1 John 2. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Second Corinthians five. Starting in verse fourteen. For the love of Christ controls us having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. That they might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. I believe what God is calling us to, I believe what God is calling this church to, is a radical way of living. I believe He's tired and wearied by anything else. I am real excited about um, this body. I'm really excited about the relationships that God has um, blessed me with in this body. And it's exciting to see the character and the passion of many of you in this body. And so I know that you long to do God's will. I know that you long, like the children of Israel longed, for the Savior, the Messiah, to come back.
And yet I, I have to um, challenge us that I feel like we've been robbing God in how we've been living. I know that I've been robbing God in my motives and my intentions and how I live. And He's calling us to more. He's calling us to better. And the challenge of today is, is that God will reveal to us what we're missing. That we will take Him at His word when He says, listen, I want to bless you so much that you will be overwhelmed with what I got for you. Practically, how does it look? I believe it looks a minute to minute, second to second, yielding to God's Spirit in our life. I think it looks like praying 6,000 times a day over every little decision we make. No, that, that sounds tedious. That sounds anal. That sounds like we have some compulsion. No, I, I think that's what it is. I think that's what it looks like. I think it's living so intentionally that we say, God, is this what's going to honor you? I think it, it's next time that, that I say, man, God, I don't really feel like giving attention to my wife and to my kids. I feel like doing my own thing. I think it's at that moment saying, but God, you own my life. You own what I need to do. My life is not my own, for I've been bought with a price. And if our church decided together, you know what, God, we're going to do that. Because you are true. You won't change. You've been faithful. You continue to be faithful. You're not leaving us here. Though we seem discouraged, you're coming back to get us. And we want your best. We want what you have for us. I believe God will bless us so greatly that, that we won't understand what hit us. We talk about wanting to change Dubuque. I think God wants to change Dubuque through us. And He wants to start by changing this church uh, into a beautiful, lovely picture of those that are in, uh, called... Uh, for His purpose. What's the verse in Romans that says, For we know that all things work together for good, for those who love Him, for those who have been called according to His purpose. Is that right? Let's get serious about living for God and not for ourselves and just enjoy what that will mean. Practically, that's hard, so let's talk this week with one another, what it's supposed to look like. Let's pray. God, this kind of living is not easy. We talked about John the Baptist earlier, God, and, and the huge role he had in, in your word and, and the huge role he played in, in uh, the whole story, your story. And it seemed like the way he lived, although to everyone else it looked crazy, was that he every day was sold out to your will, to what you wanted for his life. God, I want to be like that. I want to be special in your kingdom. I don't want to just be an everyday, lukewarm, just surviving Christian. God, I want to be the one that you call faithful. God, I want to love you the way you deserve to be loved because you have loved me so lavishly and already blessed me so much. Please, God, this, this church needs you, needs to understand what it is like to be blessed 
by you. God, help us to obey. Bring us to yourself, I pray in your name.